the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The Gospel of our Lord. Greetings, One Fellowship family and friends. Pastor Paul here with a message titled, The Way of Abiding. We're going to be looking at John chapter 15 today. But before we dive in, I invite you to bow your heads with me as I share a brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to begin with a short story titled, The Cushion of the Sea. A submarine was being tested and had to remain submerged for many hours. When it returned to the harbor, the captain was asked, how did the terrible storm last night affect you? The officer looked at him in surprise and exclaimed, storm? We didn't even know there was one. The sub had been so far beneath the surface that it had reached the area known to sailors as the cushion of the sea. Although the ocean may be whipped into huge waves by high winds, in the cushion of the sea, the waters are never stirred. In the words of Richard Foster, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. People that are so rooted in Jesus that no matter what storms come their way, they know the safety of his love and can lead others to that place. Over the past four weeks, we've been on a spiritual journey as a church family in a sermon series titled, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Examining the ancient yet fresh spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude, Sabbath and simplicity. If you've missed any of the sermons in this series, I highly recommend you go back and listen to the messages. You can find the link to our sermon podcast under the Gather tab 
in worship page of our website, onefellowship.church. Today, we will be closing out our sermon series examining one last spiritual discipline, what many call the discipline of slowing. For the sake of clarity, I prefer to call it the discipline of abiding. And this leads me to our big idea today. If we genuinely want to live for Jesus, we must radically inhabit the presence of Jesus. If we genuinely want to live for Jesus, we must radically inhabit the presence of Jesus. Point one, trust Jesus with your life. Our passage begins, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. To fully understand this text, we must understand its context. Anyone out there like history, nod your head or raise your hand. In the time of our passage, for generations, the people of Israel had been longing for the liberation and restoration of their lives and nation by the hand of Yahweh, the one who had delivered their ancestors from Egypt, then led them through the wilderness and into the promised land. Having been given over to their rebellious hearts and now living under oppressive Roman rule, when this passage was written, the Israelites were pining, thirsty for the return of God's love and presence, trusting that such would bring his peace, joy, and justice. In fact, we read over and over again in the Old Testament that the greatest hope of Israel was wrapped around the promise that God would one day dwell or abide with his people forever. For instance, we read in Leviticus chapter 26, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people." And in Ezekiel chapter 37, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. You see, the people of God long for the presence of God above all else. And to add more depth and dynamism to our passage, what metaphor do you think was often used in the Old Testament to symbolize God's care and sovereignty over his people? The metaphor of a vineyard, a garden. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. We read in Isaiah Chapter 5. In truth, the symbol of the grapevine was such a big deal 
that the Israelites had it printed on their coins and a massive grapevine of gold hung on the gates of the temple in Jerusalem. As described by one source, in the temple at Jerusalem, above and around the gate, 70 cubits high, that is 105 feet, which led from the porch to the holy place, a richly carved vine was extended as a border and decoration. The branches, tendrils, and leaves were of finest gold. The stalks of the bunches were of the length of human form, and the bunches hanging upon them were of costly jewels. Thus, as the backdrop of our passage, the people of Israel were longing for the presence of God, that he would once again dwell and abide uh, with them, and their hope of flourishing was captured in a symbol of God, a lush grapevine representing his favor. Now listen again to what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you. When he said these words, an incredible hush must have fallen over the room. To make his point even stronger, Jesus uses the phrase, I am, to begin our passage, to highlight his divinity, his mission, by quoting from Exodus 3, verse 14. So we can read this passage, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Abide in me, and I in you. Hush. In layman's terms, right from the onset of our passage, Jesus is saying that all of the promises of God, the promises of liberation and restoration, the promises of love and reconciliation, the promises of joy and justice are found in me. Do you realize how radical that statement is? It's like in those great movies or sporting events when the hero finally arrives or is revealed. When Gandalf the Grey becomes Gandalf the White in the Lord of the Rings and comes riding with the riders of Rohan at the last minute to rescue King Theoden and his people at Helm's Deep. Or when Derek Brooks makes that Super Bowl interception in 2002 and runs it back 44 yards for the game-clinching touchdown for my hometown, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Or when T'Challa is revived to lead a life-saving mission for the sake of Wakanda in the world in the film, The Black Panther. As Jesus shared these words with his followers, I'm sure they were stunned and elated. I'm guessing some of them even had a tear or two running down their faces. Why does this matter? 
Because the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. Not just for his original followers, but for us as well. In this chapter of John, chapter 15, do you know how many times Jesus uses the first person pronouns I, me, my, mine, referring to himself? 44 times. To quote theologian Frederick Bruner, Jesus is not just a passive inviter awaiting our move before he makes his. He has already made his move and therefore would very much like ours. I am taking the initiative and making the invitation. Please accept my invitation and initiative. I want very much to live with you. What an offer. Friends, Jesus came to dwell and abide with you and me. Jesus wants to bring God's peace and joy to you and me. Jesus wants to extend God's love and presence to you and me. Have you said yes to this invitation? Trust Jesus with your life. And this leads me to point two. Radically inhabit the presence of Jesus with your days. Throughout this sermon series, I've loved doing certain word studies, and today I'd like to unpack the word abide. Our passage continues, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This word abide is used eight times in our passage, and it comes from the Greek word meno, which can be translated remain, abide, dwell, wait, stick with, or be present. The picture here is powerful because it's both a promise and a warning. First, the promise. Jesus is saying that he desires to continually dwell or be present with us throughout our days. His language here is not towards a set of right beliefs or behaviors, but towards a flourishing relationship with you and me. Just as I love to spend quality time with my sons and daughter eating a good meal, playing in the surf, processing life and serving together, Jesus' call is to do what an old mentor calls life on life with us. Jesus wants to abide and be present with us and us with him. And yet many of us, if we're honest, we're simply too distracted or self-reliant or ashamed to imagine such a relationship. We can't imagine radically inhabiting the presence of Jesus with our days. This is where the warning comes in. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. 
And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Put simply, Jesus is saying that our greatest danger is not evil per se, but distance and disconnection from him. This reminds me of a story I recently came across in Outside Magazine titled, Brad Gobright Dies in a Climbing Accident. The article begins, world-class climber Brad Gobright, 31, died in a rappelling accident on Wednesday, November 27th in El Potrero Chico, a national park north of Monterey, Mexico. Although rappelling accidents are the most common cause of fatalities in climbing, the details currently known about this incident make this tragedy unusual. Here's how the tragedy unfolded. Following his success of climbing a 2,500-foot, 15-pitch rock wall called El Sendero Luminoso, Gobright and his friend Aidan Jacobson began what's called simul-wrapping, or rappelling, down the rock wall. According to the article, quote, simul-wrapping is a technique by which two climbers each descend opposite strands of rope that's been rigged through a rappel anchor, their bodies acting as counterweights to each other. And while this technique saves time, time, it also demands close coordination and communication between the climbers. For if one stops wading the rope, it could mean sending the other climber into a fall. Almost all rappelling deaths, the article says, are caused because climbers fail to tie a stopper, knight, stopper knots in the ends of the rope. Despite the fact that this life-saving step is universally known to climbers, many still avoid tying knots in the end of their rope simply because knots can cause ropes to get stuck. And how do you think Brad Gobright died? Gobright and his partner believed they had enough rope to make it down to a certain pitch on the wall and decided not to tie stopper ropes, excuse me, stopper knots. As the two were rappelling down, Gobright ran out of rope and then fell 600 feet to his death. He had lost his connection. Friends, what Jesus has initiated and is inviting us into is a life-changing, life-saving relationship, a connection that will never fail. So if disconnection is our greatest danger, how do we stay connected to Christ? How do we radically inhabit the presence of Jesus with our days? I have three suggestions, three practical next steps. The first suggestion, wake to grace. Did you know that 75% of us sleep with our smartphones right next to our beds? And if you were younger, did you know that 90% of us wake up and the first thing we do is what? Look at our phones. Friends, wake to grace. In the words of John Mark Comer, do not let your phone set your emotional equilibrium and your newsfeed set your view of the world. 
Let prayer set your emotional equilibrium and scripture set your view of the world. Begin your day in the spirit of God's presence and the truth of his scriptures. And while we've touched a lot on this in this series, it's so easy to slip back into old patterns, isn't it? Here's my suggestion. Before you go to bed each night, put your phone to bed and don't wake it up until you spent quality time with Jesus in the morning. I promise, I promise you this will change your life. The number two suggestion, see the sacred. If Jesus does in fact abide in you and you in him, there's no ordinary moment and there's no ordinary day. Everything from sipping your coffee to waking your children to sitting at your desk is a sacred endeavor. In the words of Tish Warren, quote, if I am to spend my whole life being, if I am to spend my whole life being transformed by the good news of Jesus, I must learn how grand sweeping truths Doctrine, theology, ecclesiology, Christology rub against the texture of an average day. How I spend this ordinary day in Christ is how I will spend my Christian life. Friends, see the sacred. Learn to pray over the ordinary. Your thoughts, your decisions, your purchases, your relationships, And watch how God will not only bring you satisfaction, but in himself, glory. And suggestion number three, serve the family. Immediately following our passage, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 12 and 13. What Jesus is directly referencing here is the church, the family of God. And what he's saying is that when we abide in him and he in us, the byproduct is service and sacrifice to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Thus, if you find yourself feeling more and more disconnected in him, perhaps one question you could ask is, Have I checked on someone? Have I prayed for someone? Have I sweated in the August heat for someone in my church this week? So wake to grace, see the sacred, and serve the family. If we genuinely want to live for Jesus, we must radically inhabit the presence of Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we wrap up this sermon series, I pray that this would not be the end, but the beginning for so many of us. There's some of us that need to trust you for the first time with our lives. We need to say yes to the invitation for you to dwell with us. So if that's you today, I invite you to say, yes, Lord, dwell with me, dwell in me, save me from my wrongdoing and my sin, give me new life. And God, many of us have walked with you 
for a long time. We believe in you, but we don't necessarily abide in you. God, would we radically inhabit the presence of Jesus each day, all day. God, would you wake us to grace, help us see the sacred, and help us serve the family, all for your satis- our satisfaction and your glory. So all may flourish. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.